My name is Skolk Mietling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. A podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Nikolai, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. Hello, Skolk. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you as well. I discovered you sort of through an email thread that I started with the folks um, that are involved with the Bergamot project. Uh, we'll dig into that a little bit more later because that is kind of where I initially started, um, where my interest started with this. Yeah. And then um, I started looking at uh, your work that you've done. And um, there's just so much more to it than just Bergamot. So there's quite a couple of topics that I'd like for us to talk about. But to kick us off, I think if you can maybe tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, how you came to do what you do, and anything else you'd like to share. Okay, so uh, my name is Nikolai, or Nick for short, and I work as a postdoc at the University of Edinburgh School of Informatics. And my research focuses on the intersection of high-performance computing and natural language processing, in particular machine translation. Uh, to say it simpler, uh, what I do is making sure of those really large, great models uh, run fast enough and cheap enough to be uh, accessed by the end user. And how I came to work in this field is um, I've been interested in natural languages for many years and Linux. Uh, those were my two interests growing up. Uh, and uh, when it was time to go to university, I was debating whether to do a degree in a language-related discipline or computer science-related discipline. And I ended up going for computer sci science, thinking I can learn languages on the site and maybe combine my language uh, interests inside computer science. And uh, yeah, I did my undergraduate at Edinburgh and then I was like, well, any jobs that I can get are not really jobs that um, uh, will make use of uh, my language knowledge all that much really. So I went and did a PhD in machine translation. Then I realized that I'm not really using my language interest, at least my natural language interest and knowledge in most of my work, but um, I can make uh, natural language uh, related products and I can make uh, products that eventually reach real people and help them communicate in the real world. And that was, uh, that is quite valuable and rewarding as a feeling. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, so I, there's one thing that you mentioned there that I'm quite interested in um, because I've been thinking about this quite a bit. So I've heard like a lot of these big um, large language models and uh, systems built on top of them. Like one of the things that is, and that's kind of why I haven't really experimented that much in this area is because generally it's like, it's really expensive um, to run those things. And I think you kind of touched on, on making these things fast enough and, less expensive like what what are the challenges to make this more um, accessible to a wider audience like in, in terms of money i guess well um it's kind of um the field uh, is driven by industry research at the moment uh and uh, the computational resources that they have are not something that uh, uh, even people in academia could uh, imagine having, or and then normal people as well. Uh, most of the uh, latest models that are trained uh, take uh, millions of US dollars in terms of computational budget uh, to train. And um, if we take the most famous recent model, ChatGPT, um, the cost of inference are, uh, are hidden from us, uh, but they're said to be eye-watering. Uh, and this is why things uh, have been running on the cloud for a number of years. 
so that they're fast enough to run in what is perceived by people as real time. Uh, no matter mm. how good the service is, nobody is going to wait for it for 10 minutes to produce a translation, for example, or mm-hmm. an answer to a question. Uh, so this is one aspect of speed um, that big companies have to be concerned with when they ship a product to the end user. And this is one aspect where uh, people like me who like uh, optimizing for speed are necessary. And the second part is when uh, you want to run uh, all of those deep learning models uh, locally uh, on your laptop, on your mobile phone. And the reason why you want to do that is so that your data doesn't go unnecessary into the cloud and feed let the training of yet another large model. The only way mm-hmm. to make sure this doesn't happen is to do everything locally. And this creates yeah. a lot more challenges because uh, we, we need to take models that are uh, made to design to run on hardware that costs twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars and make sure that it runs on something that costs about a thousand dollars or even less. Um, and the, the basic challenge is making those really big models a lot smaller uh, without losing that much of the quality. This is uh, the main thing. The, the second thing is making sure that uh, you write handwritten optimized code to uh, be used specifically for one particular mo- uh, model's inference. And that way, uh, knowing the hardware that you, you might run on, uh, you can get a lot more performance out of it compared to a generic off pad that might be used by researchers during the model des- design stage. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So um, talking about that, there's two um, acronyms, I guess we can just call it, uh, that I saw mentioned on your blog. And I know part of two of them. So I know what a GPU is and I know what a CPU is. What I'm curious about is what is a GPGPU and then what is low-level CPU gem routines? If you can like explain that to me a little bit, that'd be cool. So uh, GPGPU is a general purpose uh, uh, graphics processing unit. And uh, uh, the easiest way to explain this is using uh, GPUs to uh, compute to uh, to perform computations that are more uh, similar to what a CPU might do. Uh, the earliest example mm. of this, I think, was Bitcoin. Uh, when Bitcoin started gaining popularity way back uh, in 2007, of some, some small-time adoption, there were people that uh, used uh, OpenGL to write... Uh, graphics kernels that compute Bitcoin. And afterwards, uh, NVIDIA released CUDA, the uh, compute library for GPUs, which allows you to write uh, software, uh, Mm -hmm. just normal software that is executed on the GPU and takes advantage of the uh, GPU architecture. And the reason why this is very important is because all of our neural networks, everything that has happened in the field of deep learning since 2016 uh, has happened on GPUs largely and to a lesser extent on specialized hardware like uh, Google's TPUs. Uh, All of the models that we see nowadays, they are trained on GPUs precisely because People saw the potential as use uh, the potential of using GPUs for tasks other than graphics processing. Okay. Um, and the way we use GPUs comes part from the second acronym that you asked about, GEMS. GEMS stands from um, uh, general matrix matrix uh, multiplication, uh, and what GPUs are really good at is multiplying large matrices. Uh, What neural networks are represented as is many large matrices. So what the GPU does is it 
the general purpose GPU does is it chains those large matrix um, multiplications one after another uh, and does it very efficiently, a lot more efficient than the CPU. Uh, this is how we train neural networks. Now, when we want to run neural networks on the end user hardware, we don't really want to make use of the GPU uh, for these tasks because uh, uh, it will lead to power spikes. And uh, there's also issues with latency because uh, GPUs in general like a lot bigger matrices. So, if, And if you're an end user, you probably are uh, not doing that that big of a task, one item at a time. So in order to have um, good computational performance and a uh, reasonable time to receive your answer on a CPU, uh, we need to write specialized uh, matrix matrix multiplication routines or gem routines uh, that are efficient on, on your hardware. In particular, uh, what I did back in what they started doing back in 2000 and, uh, the 2019 uh, was to uh, create an efficient 8-bit uh, integer multiplication library. Uh, this is the work I did with uh, together with Kenneth Hayfield. Mm -hmm. uh, and that library uh, allowed for much faster neural network processing in our use, tiny use case, machine translation. Uh, so that we could put a machine translation model on the CPU. Huh. Uh, That's fascinating. This is, this is basically the work that uh, I have been doing since 2019. Okay. Okay. So talking about that, and you've kind of hinted at um, wanting to run things on the local device of the user. Um, there's a there's project on your blog um, called Translate Locally, which does exactly that. And I'm curious about that project from two perspectives. Like one, is that still an actively maintained project? Or is that kind of, was that kind of the inspiration that led to this other uh, Bergamot that we're going to talk about more later? Is that project like still active and a standalone thing? Or is it kind of like that has morphed into Bergamot? Uh, it is active. Uh, in fact, uh, I just pushed uh, uh, ARM support for it yesterday. Uh, neat. So now you, you can have uh, supposedly native Android builds, supposedly okay. because I don't have one yet. Uh, but yes, the project is um, the project is active. Uh, development has um, uh, slowed down a bit because uh, it's essentially a two-person project, and uh, uh, both of the people working on it uh, had a few other tasks um, on their hand. Uh, but yes, we do have a continuous pass uh, for it. Um, it's actually uh, started uh, as a spin-off of the Bergamot project, not the other way around. And the reason oh. was um, that in the early stages of Bergamot, it was exceedingly difficult to... Um, uh, produce a demo to people because um, we needed a special version of Firefox. Um, uh, we needed uh, special permissions uh, uh, to be had. We needed um, exceptions for uh, the network because uh, uh, the files were on a protected server, blah, blah, blah. And it became uh -huh. so difficult to demo that I was, I was like, there must be a better way. Um, and also we face some limitations when working with web browsers, uh, namely that if we reside into the, in, if we want to be a proper plugin and reside into JavaScript space via WebAssembly, we are actually losing mm. uh, a lot of our performance because um, web, the WebAssembly virtual machine uh, by design, cannot know what the what hardware it's running on for security oh, reasons, and okay. we cannot optimize towards uh, the specific hardware because mm -hmm, of security mm -hmm. reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so we decided that uh, it would be nice to have a native um, application, and also the native application has other use cases. The 
the Bergamot plugin is mostly something um, that is used for translating web pages, whereas uh, translate locally is something that you can use to uh, translate documents, um, have an interactive um, uh, translation bit, uh, like a Google Translate style webs website prompt, except it runs locally. Uh, and um, we wanted to give um, uh, an off a true offline product, something that you can download, install, download your models, and then you disconnect. You go on the, you're somewhere on the go. You you fire it up, and you don't need internet connection. You don't need to open a web browser. You don't need anything. You just start writing text, and it translates it for you. Uh, and that that proved uh, a lot easier to demo, and also it's mm -hmm. fun. It's honestly a lot of fun. I managed to show it to a lot of people. I was finally able to <laughs> explain to my family what I'm doing because um, <laughs> beforehand, writing down a command and showing something on the terminal is really not that impressive. Whereas when you have a graphical application, even if it's a very crude graphics. Uh, UI design because it's done by computers, by low level computer scientists, but it is a UI. You can click on it and you can have end users that are happy with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, on that point, would you of the project like help with regards to UI, like design, user experience type stuff? Um, yes. So, um, Yes, we would like help with UI design, but uh, uh, suggestions for a design, while helpful, are not nearly as helpful as somebody appearing with a pull request, uh, because uh, uh, yeah, sitting down and uh, implementing someone's suggestion takes time. Uh, and uh, we don't always have the time, but yes, uh, in any form, in any manner, an open source contributor or somebody that actually uh, knows QT and uh, is willing to work on it is going to be very valuable for us. Okay, that's good to hear. So, okay, so I think I was going to bring up Bergamot a little later, but I think we've fully stepped into it now. So as you said, um, Translate Locally was actually spun off of um, Bergamot because you had this problem of demoing things. So if we stay back then, um, so what exactly is Bergamot and what was the problems that it tried to solve and what is the status of that project at the moment? So uh, Bergamot is... Um the whole idea behind the project is that machine translation nowadays is quite ubiquitous in our lives. We use it everywhere. We use it in social media. We use it when reading the news. We use it when going abroad. Uh, and we're used to it, the fact that it's free to use, but it's not actually free. Uh, we pay for it with our data and we compromise our privacy. The excuse for always using machine translation on the cloud is that uh, it's quite expensive to do uh, and it cannot be done locally. Uh, however, this is no longer true or accurate as of, at least it wasn't true as of 2019 and it's getting less and less true nowadays. So at Bergamot, we decided, okay, let's see. Uh, can we actually take a machine, trans, uh, a machine translation system and put it on, on your local device uh, without compromising uh, uh, your privacy? Uh, and turns out that, yes, we can, in fact, do that. Uh, we partnered up with Firefox as an open source browser and uh, a privacy champion because we thought that if anybody's interested in protecting your privacy, it would be them. Uh, they responded. And um, this is how the project was born. Uh, the project also has um, commercial use in the sense that they're, 
there is a lot of machine translation happening in commercial spaces. It's uh, mostly done on the cloud. And even when commercial companies uh, uh, pay the, the fee to not have their data used for training models and to make sure that their data is private, uh, accidents happen. Uh, one of the more famous examples is the Norwegian state-owned oil company, Statoil, uh, leaked the employment contracts of uh, a bunch of its employees through translate.com. Uh, that was quite embarrassing at the time. <laughs> so this is uh, this was kind of the inception and the justification of the project that we can, in fact, do better and we should do better. We shouldn't compromise our privacy to get machine translation services. We can do... Uh, we can do it on our local machines. So, um, so that's quite a lot of stuff, and I, I'm glad that it exists. I've tried it out in Firefox when um, it was announced initially, and it works extremely well. Um, but with any of these kinds of things, I'm sure there was a lot of challenges that you faced. So can you share some of the challenges you faced with this project and maybe how you've addressed some of them? Well, um, in the... In particular, in the um, uh, well, there's se several challenges that we faced. One of them was um, on uh, engineering level, uh, where the, uh, where would the extension exist? Uh, and this is uh, one of the reasons for the translate locally versus uh, and Firefox existing side by side. Um, we were told that. Um, our project cannot ever become part of the Firefox code base. Uh, and we communicated with Firefox that when we go through their preferred route, which is WebAssembly, uh, we lose a lot of performance because uh, WebAssembly sim uh, simply doesn't allow us to know uh, basic things used in optimization, such as how many registers are we allowed to use. Uh, how much cache does the system have? Uh, how, what is the instruction set architecture on the device that's running? None of this is known from the WebAssembly. So WebAssembly takes a very conservative approach uh, to the user hardware so that it can cater to the lowest common denominator. And this makes it uh, very slow. Um, on top of that, um, WebAssembly by design doesn't allow uh, internet communication, or at least uh, when internet communication is allowed, this is a, this poses security risk. So most of the browsers disable it, uh, which means that uh, when we want to use uh, more threads, we kind of explode with the memory requirements. Uh, this was uh, this caused a lot of back and forth between. Uh, uh, our team, which was responsible for the high-performance translation engine and the, uh, the Firefox side of people who were uh, kind of guiding of how the integration should happen. And uh, eventually we settled on um, WebAssembly back and they did a few things to hide the latency. Uh, we did translate locally. Um, Independently of that, we also have a native message uh, interface that kind of uh, has uh, allows the browser to launch translate locally as a child process and communicate with it directly, uh, therefore gaining retaining all the speed. Um, but in the end, uh, it actually worked out better than expected. Users are mostly happy. Um, the loss of speed is not uh, uh, evident in most use cases. Uh, this was uh, on the pure engineering bit of challenge, challenges, which we, we kind of managed to hide that from the users because we don't really... Uh, we have a few reports of people complaining of it's not, not as fast as Google Translate, but most of the time it's fine. Uh, where we do lack severely behind is in terms of language pair support. Google has, what's that, 250 language pairs. We have 12, 14. 
creating uh, new language pairs is quite challenging because it is not a simple task. You need to be at least somewhat familiar with the way deep learning works. And uh, it's not something that you can get right on your first attempt. So um, people were very excited initially to help. And mm -hmm. uh, the way they wanted to help was, uh, oh, look, it's almost perfect, except like in this one case, um, it makes a translation mistake. And they give us a, a translation mistake that it makes and says, oh, can you just fix that? And then it's going to be uh, a lot better. But this is a um, neural network. We can't just uh, fix that. We don't control what it generates, really. It's a black box mm, machine. And if it makes a mistake, uh, well, good, it made a mistake, but we don't, we don't know how to fix it. Uh, the only way to really fix it is to add more training data uh, and produce a better model. I mean, like we can hack around some things, uh, such as if you know that uh, uh, the translation of sentence uh, of some very common sentence X is Y, you can hard code it and bypass the neural network, but this is not something that we wanted to involve ourselves with uh, in the initial release of the plugin. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, uh, what we need is um, a lot of help with building models. Nobody has volunteered to do that, and that's understandable because we don't really have a, a good mechanisms to. Uh, uh, easily introduce people to model building and machine mm. translation. Uh, mach machine translation in general. One of the projects that we are working at the moment is uh, how to make this more accessible to people uh, and allow them to um, participate more into the project. But again, uh, this. Uh, this involves uh, computational resources and uh, yeah. how can we expect somebody to commit uh, eight GPUs for two weeks to build a translation model? I mean, it would be nice if somebody wanted to do that, but it's not something that we can really expect of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's tricky. Uh, we so, would appreciate as well code contributions, but again, that means somebody getting into a relatively complicated code base. Uh, mm -hmm. So we don't really get uh, that many outside contributors. So one of my questions was kind of tangentially related to this. Um, and it's around this idea of community management as a service. Um, and I was curious if that is something that projects like this would find useful. Because I, I mean, so there's software contributions that somebody can make. Um, there's design contributions. There's um, dedicating GPU time, if that is possible, like you've mentioned, um, to build these models. But then um, there's also other things. There's talking about the project. There's writing um, posts about the project. There's reaching out to a community of people and finding out what works, what doesn't work, and maybe explaining how this works. Like you said, some people say, oh, it got this thing wrong. If you could just fix that, it'd be great. But actually, like you mentioned, it's it's not that simple. It's not like a text file you can go and edit. Um, yeah. So with that broad statement in mind, do you think that this is something that would be useful if there was, I don't know, a company or a, or people, individuals, who would provide that kind of service to projects? Do you think that would be useful, valuable to projects like yours? I think that um, well, this is uh, this would be very valuable, uh, not as valuable to projects like ours because we have a tiny community, uh, but open source is notoriously known for being extremely hostile and uh, uh, very unfriendly to new contributors. I think that uh, we have all seen some of uh, uh, Linus's uh, uh, tirades, tirades against uh, new contributors. 
um, mm. say, saying uh, a lot of exp- expletives and saying like, fix your broken things, crap, <laughs> yes. but he didn't use crap. Yeah. Uh, don't break F user space, for example. This is not this is not a way to get people to stay and contribute in your project. Uh, sure. uh, also, depending on the community, some communities are a lot more unfriendly than others, a lot more uh, hardcore. Uh, the word neckbeard comes to mind and it's not used in uh, mm. uh, the most positive sense. So I think that... Yeah. Um, uh, there definitely is a need uh, for a better community for a better community management, or at least some sort of guidance, especially when it comes to uh, really big projects. Um, this is somewhat tangential, but I'm I'm following the Asahi Linux project about running the um, Linux on the Apple M1 to etc hardware and mm-hmm. they're facing a lot of difficulty upstreaming their patches because uh, of uh, partly hostile community but partly um just uh, unwillingness <laughs> of people to be told that something they have done is wrong uh, so yes i think that the community manager for open source projects uh, especially for big open source projects uh would be great i know some projects do better than others uh some projects are friendlier than others yep. uh but uh all the places that they have been a first-time contributor uh things have been rather difficult i would say mm-hmm. uh if not uh, if not overtly hostile yeah. uh, it's and I understand the people. It's because, especially at the time, I was uh, uh, a very junior developer. I I did not really know how to use Git. It was like in my very early university years. So, yeah. so yes, it is it is a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, open source uh, open source uh, projects benefit massively from the community for testing uh, and for bug reporting open source software is much more widely tested than closed source software i feel um this is this is why uh a lot of the deep learning toolkits uh, that are used uh, microsoft translate is essentially open source uh it's basically the marion project uh tensorflow pytorch uh open nmt all of them are used to run commercial systems as well, but by having them open source, uh, they benefit from a lot of community testing, which you can't really do mm, only in your yeah. company. Yeah. Um, that, that leads to a different question, um, which I can clearly hear that you are passionate about, and that, that is on your blog, you state that you're an avid supporter and believer in open source software. Do you care to dig into that a little bit more? What what is it about open source that makes you feel so strongly about about it? Um, well, I don't, I don't exactly. I'm not exactly sure how it started. I just, um, I guess, um, back when I was uh, very young teenager and I was uh, getting into the Linux community, it was just. Um, the help that you would, that you were getting from the community seemed um, uh, a lot more genuine. Uh, getting to do some, uh, especially back then, Linux was really not what you would call user friendly. Uh, but there was a lot of wikis, a lot of information. And people were uh, answering questions on. Uh, on forums helping you how to do, how to do something, and um, I like the idea that uh, you pay for the hardware, and uh, the software is a community effort, and uh, by the software being a community effort, uh, you would have a grassroots uh, uh, movement to see what is uh, what is necessary. And it will be developed. That's in an ideal world. In practice, 
uh, it doesn't work like this. Uh, but uh, companies see the value of open source projects and they finance them. But back is, when I was a teenager, I didn't really understand all of that, but I liked how uh, everything I used was free and contributed by uh, people that cared about it. Uh, uh, they they spent their, their time on it and they provided it as a service to the community. I, I, I didn't have the software developing uh, skills back then, but uh, what I did have was more time. So I spent a lot of time uh, writing wiki entries, answering questions on forums, trying to help other people get into the community and trying to uh, repay the community for the free software that I'm given by helping other people uh, use that software. And I, I saw how through a community effort, uh, there was slow improvement of uh, things. And I like how it just worked at some points. Like maybe it wasn't great initially, but it was getting better. Uh, and uh, the customization uh, support was vastly superior compared to other operating systems. Anything that I didn't like, I could touch. Anything that I didn't know mm. why it was like this, I could go and see why it was like this. Um, mm. And yeah, that's, uh, I guess it started kind of, um, yeah, it started just t teenage idealism. Now, now I think that um, it would be nice if people get paid to work on an open source projects because they bring value to a lot of other projects such as well the best example is the linux kernel which is used uh, basically everywhere and it is yep. funded uh, by by a lot of companies because uh, they realize how valuable it is it's a it's a critical infrastructure that we all run on uh but the vast majority of the work is either running apache or engines open source software open source mm -hmm. uh, software like open ssl or libre ssl uh, are in charge of our security they're audited a lot more than closed source alternatives all of that is uh, keeping me passionate about open source i just wish that uh, funding people, uh, open source developers would happen through uh, a more transparent way so that they could more feel like this mm. is a nine to five job. Very few of them can have an open source project as a nine to five job. Most of them do this in their spare time, much to their detriment. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really true. Yeah, no, I think um, those are definitely challenges, but it, it does look like slowly but surely there's some things being, some ideas being floated and some more than ideas. Um, I think GitHub is trying to fill some of this space and then Open Collective, I think, has played quite a critical role here. I I think I like, um, uh, I like the... Um... Uh, free for personal use, but um, paid for commercial use approach. Uh, freemium, uh, mm -hmm. is that called? Well, um, this this could certainly work. The donation, there's the donation model, but I don't think that works all that well unless it's a really big project. Um, I also uh, like how sometimes. Um, open source developers are noticed for the project that they do and they're hired by companies um, mm. to work full-time on their open source project because it's team critical. Uh, the, um, the Steam Deck, the Valve uh, console that was released, it's running Linux and uh, Valve paid a number of prominent community members uh, that were famous for uh, either their graphics programming or for improving the user experience of a desktop environment and that that way they're paying developers and it's helping uh, keep a project afloat but it's not it's not necessarily 
paying the whole community that maintains the projects. It's taking a few select people and paying them to the deem important. So it's again, it's not mm. great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's surely a, a challenging space. Um, but I mean, at least if like there's all these different forms of um, experiments going on, um, I'm sure maybe over time we'll find something that that works more widely. But I don't think it will ever be like a completely solved problem. There will always be challenges. I think that um, we are moving more towards more open source. I think Microsoft are seeing a lot of value of open source. They've started um, contributing to the Linux kernel. They're getting uh, their Windows subsystem for Linux to help um, open source developers. Um, I think that uh, ideally in the future, we are going to see a lot more of the commercial uh, engines open their source uh, and maybe uh, run on some sort of a, uh, run some sort of a subscription service for, uh, for a small part of the uh, functionality. I don't really know mm -hmm. how 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 that can happen. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, being open source and uh, uh, receiving reliably money for its uh, royalties for its use. That's yeah, difficult that's to happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. But it's good. Um, I think conversations about it is good because at least the problem is acknowledged and then people will try things. Not everything will work. Um, and and I think I think maybe there isn't one solution. Maybe there's a couple of solutions, and it depends on your project which one will work for you. So talking about um, large language models, I mean, it's there. A lot of people have said 2023 is the year of what they say AI, but you know these large language models, machine learning, generative AI. You know, it's everywhere. It's in the in the news. Good, bad stuff. ChatGPT has entered mainstream conversation. Like even people that don't have any idea of what neural nets are or what machine learning are, they've they've heard about ChatGPT and they might even be playing around with it. Um, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges and opportunities, specifically around large language models? There's uh, a lot of things uh, here. So uh, just because uh, people can now generate art very cheaply and uh, very mm -hmm. quickly, and they don't really need uh, an artist for a lot of tasks that they normally would have before. Um, there's also uh, uh, college uh, professors fearing that students are going to use chat GPT to turn in essays. Yep. Uh, which is which has already happened, but thankfully, well, I was going to say, thankfully they they have all been caught, but in fact, we only know about the cases that have been caught. So yeah. we don't know yeah. how many successfully managed to cheat. Um, <laughs> I think that there is a lot of noise in the media because uh, uh it looks good like when you use it 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 looks smart it can um for you quite well initially uh and uh it's uh useful um it can explain things to you uh the but the downside is that it doesn't do references so it's really hard to know when it's lying to you and when it's making shit up, uh, you have to take everything that it says with a grain of salt and cross-reference it somewhere because yeah. um, otherwise it just doesn't uh, work. But it's uh, it's progress. It's progress in terms of... Um, uh, it just reminds me, uh, back in the 60s, I think, when neural networks were invented, uh, Somebody said, uh, uh, proved a theorem saying that um, a neural network with one hidden uh, layer can approximate any natural function. So 
uh, neural networks are an universal function approximator. And uh, given a large enough neural network, and given the whole internet as uh, information, we are going to approximate uh, a lot the collective knowledge of the whole internet. But this is uh, this is first just a snapshot in time. It doesn't get updated. Uh, API, uh, famously, APIs change, but uh, what, whatever that ChatGPT has uh, learned has already happened. Uh, it's not really easy to tell neural network to unlearn something. It is uh, it is possible uh, in certain ways, but uh, it's uh, it's definitely not something that's a, that's a solved problem. Uh, mm. And uh, this is one particular challenge. How do we keep uh, uh, information current in those language models? Uh, the other thing is, if uh, I'm sure that uh, you and everyone else has seen cases where ChatGPT just gets things really wrong. Um, one mm. of my favorite examples is when I asked ChatGPT uh, if it spoke Bulgarian, uh, it uh, answered me in Russian and continued the conversation in Russian. Uh, it does, however, speak Bulgarian if I ask it a specific question that is not, do you speak Bulgarian? Uh, uh, what uh, And that's, that's likely because there's, uh, I, I write in Cyrillic and a lot of the Cyrillic uh, data out there is Russian. And for some uh, for some problems, it just starts on Russian. But I think um, I think ChatGPT can be a valuable tool uh, to aid us uh, with some tasks, uh, but it is quite far away from being used without supervision. Um, you can use it to write some code, uh, but in a very limited setting. If you ask it mm -hmm. uh, for a more complicated problem that is not something that you would have seen on the internet it may come up with some solution but it's definitely not going to be a solution that covers um, uh, all the edge cases um, and i just invite people the, to try it it's quite easy mm -hmm. to see how how it gets it gets it wrong uh, in fact yeah. in the first few days where chat was released um, Stack Overflow put a ban on ChatGPT answers because the website was flooded by a large, uh, large amount of mostly correct but certainly incorrect answers, and finding the uh, mistakes is. Um, but it's nice progress, uh, I would say. Um, some people uh, say that is that really progress because literally all they did is uh, uh, throw more GPU hours at uh, the problem, uh, learn on the whole internet, uh, and then attempt to de detoxify it by outsourcing um, some of the prompt writing to a third world country. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that's not uh, uh, entirely ethical. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know. It's uh, a lot of those things. Uh, somebody, somebody has to do it, but the most cost-effective uh, way to do it is to outsource it to a place where the cost of labor is a lot lower. Um, yeah. Another challenge uh, that we have is monetization. Uh, none of those things are turning profit. Uh, the cost of running ChatGPT is... Um, uh, eye-watering according to reports but nobody is giving us the real numbers yet but yeah um, GPT-4 is supposed to come out this year and uh, early reports say it's going to blow us away I am honestly a bit skeptical I think that it's going to look really cool at first and then in a few weeks, people are going to start uh, finding flaws. Um, yeah. Somebody uh, ran a um, comparison between ChatGPT and Google search and said how ChatGPT outperformed Google in seven out of 10 instances. Uh, 
which is mostly because ChatGPT does really good explanations. Uh, but again, I don't think that uh, it's a replacement for Google because Google can actually give you a reference that you can double check, whereas ChatGPT can't really do that. Or even worse, if you ask it for a reference, it's going to make one up. Uh, it, if you ask it to recommend your book on a certain topic, it's just going to make something up. You know, this is essentially a fake news generator. <laughs> yeah, that's hmm. yeah, interesting. I, I don't see it yet being a threat to the big search engines. I don't think it's a threat, uh, most, mostly because it's also uh, quite inefficient to run as a search. Uh, but I think uh, it could enhance uh, a search engine experience. Mm, I think that's kind of what Microsoft is thinking. Um, to do with Bing. I've heard some news about that. Maybe that will finally grow Bing's user base to uh, more than 1% of Google's. <laughs> yeah. Well, Microsoft is surely investing heavily in OpenAI. I saw today a, a news article that they're investing even more. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that. And um, I wonder. So on the one hand, when whenever ChatGPT is released and it gets all the publicity, uh, OpenAI stock price goes up, mm -hmm. which brings money to the company. Uh, but in practice, um, the computational costs are still there. The path to commercialization is again not not entirely clear. But maybe uh, in the future, this is also going to be solved. But yeah, Microsoft are investing heavily. Google is supposed to release their own chatbot. Uh, that is going to compete with um, ChatGPT. Uh, everyone is uh, trying to get to that space. Yeah, it is definitely a new space that is very hot at the moment. Well, Nikolai, this has been a, a good conversation. We've had some challenges with uh, the internet and technology, strangely enough, as it always goes. but. Um, I'm sure we're going to be able to edit this together and make something really interesting for people who's interested in the space and um, interested in open source in general. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all, all the, the things, things open. open.